I have uh, Noxy pudding and pie with me today. Crying yeah. like a baby. Well, she's too hot. She can't take off her fur knickers. No, I know. Poor little boo-boo. I mean, they can because they've been molting here, there and everywhere. And we're both sneezing wrecks. I know, I know. And my dad couldn't breathe. No, we almost killed your father. Yeah. That was that was a good day, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> it was a day. I wouldn't <laughs> call it a good one, but yeah. yeah. He's now having to go and find an inhaler. It's not great. You nearly killed Pooberus, you. Yeah. But here we are. This could very well be episode 100. The 100th one. The 100th one. Wow. You can listen to us non-stop for an entire dirty long weekend. A hundred hours. Uh, approximately a hundred hours. Because we've also got the session series and um, I don't think I counted the first pair that you did, the Reaper the Bear ones. No. Um, and the Edward the Confessor trilogy doesn't count as an episode. So no. we're well over 100 hours now of content yeah. that we've we've created. Yeah. I, if nothing else, I feel like I've justified buying the podcasting equipment. This wasn't a fly-by-night, no, one-shot-and-you're-done kind of deal. This was... We stuck at it. And you we only missed that it. one goddamn week. Well, oh, it was missed. 100 episodes in 101 weeks. <sighs> It irks at me, honestly. It's like a, an itch at the back of my brain I shall never be able to scratch. Well, there you go. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser-known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... Emma has told me, dear listeners, that she is not willing to sit in that seat for more than an hour tops because she is already feeling sweaty... And it's very close, and she would very much like to just go and recline on a sofa and, and watch, be hot. And watch TV with my Noxie, mm. so, which is what I do most evenings, if I'm going to be honest. With that in mind, we're going we're gonna to crack on, because I on. don't think I'm getting any more enthusiasm from Emma than this current low-level... Low-level rumblings of enthusiasm. You might, you might get enthused by the subject matter. I might. Should we see Noxie? What do you reckon, see. me and you? This story yeah. takes place during the reign of Queen Victoria, oh. Empress of India, wearer of black. Grumpy arse herself. Old Queen Grumpy, yes. <laughs> Though, to be fair, young Victoria would only have been fourth in line to the throne in 1825, when it is believed that William Topaz McGonagall was born. No, I thought, I thought J.K. Rowling made that last name up. Oh, no, no, no. You've you've really preempted. I think it's the final paragraph of this entire story. But yes, she did name Minerva McGonagall after William Topaz McGonagall. Amazing. So you know he does something of of note. Yes. Yes. Per traditional English superstition, a topaz gemstone could cure lunacy. All right. Okay. So anyone with topaz as their middle name is bound to be a perfectly normal person. No. Interestingly, also, Romans believed that wearing a topaz was a surefire way to ward off any and all curses. So, okay. if you don't own a topaz... Who are you? Yeah, probably best get one. Yeah. Now. We'll wait. Have you got one? Good. Okay, moving on. William would later insist that he'd been born in Edinburgh, the capital city of his beloved Scotland. Oh, I love Scotland too. Though others have suggested 
that he was actually born somewhere in Ireland. His father, who was unquestionably Irish, worked as a handloom weaver and moved his wife and five kids to Dundee, where the Weavering Corporation of Dundee had been working for nearly 300 years to ensure minimum quality and working standards across the local textile industry, as well as being able to provide a basic system of welfare support to do-paying weavers and their families. So if you were going to be a weaver, Dundee was the place to be because they they were quite progressive in terms of some socialist policies they put forward. Any policies, to be honest, other than I'm going to work you to the absolute bone for nothing is, you know, quite progressive for the time, let's face it. Well, it was sadly a bit too progressive for the time because almost immediately after the family had moved in 1833, the rights that had been provided by the Weaver Incorporation were removed. Oh. When it was decided that protected rights for workers were getting in the way of mechanisation, which had the potential of making massive profits for the factory owners and shareholders of the various fabric companies. Yeah, there it is. So, Fat yeah. cats of industry strike again. But uh, William's dad had, had turned up literally in the very last year that there were workers' rights in Dundee, oh, uh, no. which must have been a bit of a bummer. Yeah. Because you imagine that probably, you know, factored in to, mm. to his choice to go to Dundee rather than anywhere else. Anywhere else, yeah. Mm. I mean, there's but there's like, there's literally factories all over the north of England. Mm. Isn't yes, there? there were. Yes, the mill mill towns. Of... I was going to say mill. Yeah, sorry, my brain just went completely you, blank. You kind of stopped half thought there, and I was like, okay. Yeah, we'll I was just I was just kind of sat there thinking about the uh, East Lank mill towns and. Did you get all factories patriotic? Of... And a I bit did. I you know teary. I heard the Hovis tune in the, in the back of my head. Oh, Lancashire, God's own country. Absolutely. Da, 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 da. Yeah. Aww. So Get on your bike. They got there and they had a real tough go for the first five years. I bet. As William, he struggled to establish himself in the new, harsher working conditions of the city. All right. Then, in 1838, mm. a new kind of factory opened, making materials out of jute that was being imported from India. Mm. By treating the tough fibres with whale oil, Whaling conveniently being another big industry in Dundee at the time. Really? Could... That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. The whaling fleets from Scotland went out from the Tay, so they went out from oh, Dundee. Right. Very good. But by using combining the whale oil with the jute, you can make this incredibly hard wearing and strong material. Right. And Dundee quickly became the jute capital of the world. Ooh. With over a hundred factories making everything from wagon covers destined for the wild west of America. Wow. To thousands upon thousands of sandbags that would prove very useful during the trench warfare of World War One. Yeah. Having what was essentially a monopoly on the production of jute, the city of Dundee should have experienced a massive improvement in living standards, especially for the weavers such as William's father. Uh, shoulda, woulda, coulda. Yeah, it wasn't the case, because although the handful of factory owners and the preferred merchants, who were collectively known as the jute barons, did become wealthy... <laughs> They decided that sharing the wealth with the community was for suckers. Right, okay. Instead, they worked together to artificially suppress wages and to control the prices of dupe materials. They did this via collective agreements on wages across the various companies, suppressing any union activities. And the other way that they saved a bit of money, 
he tended to only hire women. Because you may be surprised. <sighs> I'm to learn. not surprised with what you're going to say next. I'm absolutely not. But in the mid 1800s, yeah. women were generally paid less than men. Oh, were they? Were Even we, when were performing we the same job. Were we cheaper? You were cheaper. Are we cheaper? Mm. Still, yes. Well, well, we're not actually, but we get paid less. Yes, and Which definitely then. Shit. I mean, despite that, the fact was that there was this entire generation in Dundee where the men stayed at home and the women went to work. But because the women were earning less, the it, everyone, you know, it wasn't just like emancipation. It was like everyone was just facing a drop in their living standards because only the women could get jobs, but they weren't getting paid as much as the men used to. Oh, for goodness sake. But, you know, the, the jute barons were making money hand over fist. So. Oh, I bet they were. Nevertheless, despite this harsh work environment, William's Rubbish. dad, he was able to get a good job as some skilled labour was still required. And he was, you know, an artisan. So the family were able to live in relative comfort once Ooh. the jute boom came. With the factories continuing to pop up all over the city, William who was coming of age, felt it would be a good idea to follow in his father's footsteps and learn the weaving trade. Right. He was reportedly a natural. And Is that a good idea, though? Considering considering where they are, what he's grown up with, is that a good idea? I, I don't know. Well, he's seen that his dad as a sort of high... a technician in the making of jutes. You know, he's he's got one of the, the higher skilled jobs. He's making good money and William's thinking, well, my dad can teach me to do what he does. Mm. I can be earning the same money as me dad. And look at this jute industry. Only Dundee has it. It's going to be work for the rest of my life. It's a a strong investment in his future. Fair enough. I'm not drinking an an exciting drink, by the way. If you can hear my ice clacking in the glass, it's juice. Because I don't really drink. Mm. William's gamble following his father into the weaving industry paid off and he was able to take a skilled position as a senior handloom weaver by the age of just 20 Mm. which i assume is pretty good going i don't actually know the sort of um progression chart that you go through to get to senior handloom weaver don't know but he had he had a good level of job security and william mcgonagall decided it was probably time to create a family all of his very own it was, after all, what was expected of him. Mm. And William was eager to be seen as a very successful man. Throughout his life, he was always keen to be seen as serious and successful. Hmm. So, not much fun then? Well, not intentionally. Oh, good. William got <laughs> married to a fellow factory worker called Jean King on July 11th, 1846, at the age of only 21. And the newlyweds got down to the business of manufacturing babies as well as jute, eventually ending up with seven kids. I'd say fair to middling for the time. Well, having achieved all of this at a relatively young age, William began looking for another way to distinguish himself amongst the people of Dundee. Mm, Possibly about the age of 30, Mm. if you're thinking like seven kids. Yeah. So we're talking from 21 to... Yeah, it, you've got to assume it's a kid a year. Around about a kid a year, give or take. So he's just he's just coming up to his 30s and he needs... Yeah. He's like, well, I've, I've done job, I've done family, I need mm-hmm. something else to, to raise me up above the normal people because I'm, I am special. I'm destined for something more. He believed that. Mm-hmm. Taking stock of his strengths, 
William realised that he had a particular talent for committing large amounts of text to memory. He began reciting poems, and especially sections of Shakespeare, for his fellow workers, soon God. gaining a reputation as a bit of an intellectual and an artiste. Oh Despite the fact that he'd not actually shown any evidence of either, he'd just parroted back Truthfully, some blank verse. This can this guy's coming across as a bit of a cock end. I'm not gonna lie. Is that your initial feeling about My William? initial feeling is that I'm not I'm not taking a shine to him. Okay, well you know what I'm like? I either like the people you tell me stories about or I don't and I'm struggling with this one. I I don't dear listener, I do not like Shakespeare. Okay, well, I have a feeling that, that the next piece of information may not uh, turn turn you round on him. May not. I'm going to guess not. Uh, the praise went to his head from his fellow factory workers and William decided that he was destined to become an actor. Oh, God, he's thesp. He's thespin. Oh, God. I mean, do you know what? It, it, it's no mean feat to, to recite Shakespeare. Mm. It's long... <laughs> and long-winded and pompous and flowery and completely unnecessary. Okay. That's a a good review of Shakespeare. Completely unnecessary. (laughs) Completely unnecessary. (laughs) Um, But nevertheless, very difficult to memorise. So, you know, that in itself is a skill. Well, it is a skill, and it's a skill he had, but unfortunately, (sighs) being able to recite lines is not quite the same as being able to Deliver, deliver them, them yes. Yeah. Mm. And William was not able to rise beyond leading roles in factory productions and some minor Amdram performances. Oh. It'd be like Gorka number three. Looks a lordy. Oh my god. But he was he was an optimist. He was one of life's half full kind of people. All and right. he was convinced that sooner or later he was gonna achieve his dream. Well it turns out that his optimism it was contagious. And his fellow workers began to also honestly believe that William just needed a chance to perform on a bigger stage and his acting career would take off. Oh, my God. He was, he was the one of them that was going to make it. He was going to break through. He's the one. Well, bear in mind I told you about, you know, the, the poor conditions and the poor wages. Right. These people in his factory believed in him so much that they literally paid a theatre owner to put William McGonagall into a starring role. What? Yep. So the actor wasn't being paid. The friends of the actor were paying the theatre to put him in that starring role. And even better, it was a play by Shakespeare. Oh, do you know what? I wouldn't... You know, considering the times and, and you know, the constraints on finance for so many people, I could not for shame take a penny off other people to pursue something as stupid as acting no because he was going to become a star he was going to make loads of money and he paid them all back with interest says who says william this is it this is hearsay because although he's approaching 50 at this point oh my god how long has he been trying 20 years (gasps) he spent 20 years trying to be an actor oh mate give it up well no because you're a lost cause he's going to be in a real theater in a real production of Shakespeare, and he is playing the title role in Macbeth, the he's... Scottish play. It's made for him. He loves Scotland. He's going to be Macbeth. He's going to play Macbeth. Hamish Macbeth. What do you mean, Hamish Macbeth? 
that that was his name, right? I don't. I think it. I, I actually don't know what his first name was. I just know him as Macbeth. Have I just made that up? I, we'll go with it. Can we Google that? Not right now. Oh, we'll have to Google it later. But yes, he was going to play. Why is Macbeth. that? Going to, I didn't even do Macbeth at school. Right, but you know the basic story. Nope. Okay, basic story. Macbeth. Mi- yeah, McChicken Beth. Macbeth meets the witches on the heath. When shall we three meet again, in thunder, lightning, or in rain? Mm. They tell him that he's going to become king. Yes. His wife then convinces him to murder the king so that he can become king. I thought she killed him because no, she gets no. the blood on her hands and then yeah, she can't wash he leaves, it off. He leaves the knives. Um, he doesn't smear the blood on the two guards to frame them. Uh, so she goes back and does it, saying he's a weak-willed man, and then she goes um, mental with the guilt of it all. Right. And then he is killed fighting a man called Macduff <laughs> because there is a prophecy that Macbeth cannot be killed by someone of woman born and Macduff, procre- uh, Macduff he proclaims that he is not of woman born because he was born via c-section he was from his mother's womb untimely ripped and then oh, right. Macbeth actually it's not one of those great death scenes you know where you get to soliloquy um he dies off stage they sort of start fighting oh, right. they move off stage and then Macduff walks back on holding Macbeth's head. Oh, right. So that's the basic plot line of it. Oh, right. Okay. Interesting. Okay. I did Twelfth Night. Well, naturally, for William McGonagall, he'd always known that at some point he would be asked to play Macbeth. Of course. Iconic role. So he had all the lines memorised. Didn't need to practice. He knew him. He'd been... His long-suffering wife had heard him do most of the lines... Oh, my ...over God. the past 20 do years. Do you know what? I'm really glad... As much as you like to tell me all about the little snippets from history, mm-hmm. at, at, at least you're not reciting the same thing over and over and over again. Because I think that might lead to divorce. I will. I'm not going to lie. That, that, that might lead to divorce. At this point, I should probably point out that through all of this, everything that's going to come after this, his wife sticks with him. Okay, that's really important because a love like this... <laughs> It's not the kind of love we have, obviously. I'm not going to mention her again, Jean, Oh, my God, Jean. bless her. The Jean Genie, go on. Just if every now and then, if every now and then you can just imagine Jean just head in hands. Crying. Kind of yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, William, so he's over the moon, right up until he was told who was going to be playing the role of Macduff. Because it turns out that the man who was going to be killing him was someone that William Topaz McGonagall simply could not stand. That's surely that's the best person to play against. No, but he didn't want to be killed by this man. He felt that that was in some way this person, even though they were play pretend, getting one up on him. So he wasn't particularly happy. Um, yeah, but you know the play's not not called Macduff, is it? Still, it rankled with him to the point that on opening night, yeah, when he delivered the line, "I throw my warlike shield, lay on Macduff, and damned be him that first cries, hold." Enough. Is that supposed to be his last line? I, I don't know what that means. Basically, come on then, let's fight. Okay. And whoever wins, wins. All right, okay, fair enough. Like you say, it's Shakespeare, it's flattery. Yeah. He decided that he was not going to be the one who cried hold. And rather than going off stage to die, he continued to fight his rival with a prop sword until the performance had to be abandoned. What a div. And I imagine, you know, at first it was sort of, sword fighting as actors do yeah. until eventually the guy playing Macduff realised that 
he was trying to kill him. Yeah, <laughs> he was just with a slamming away with this blunt blade. Oh God! Right. Okay. It was a very abrupt end to his aspirations of becoming an actor. However, I'm sure that William claimed a moral victory. Oh, I bet he did. And as this is pretty much the end of the play anyway, I'm sure the audience loved it. Because it's, it's one thing to say you went to see Macbeth. It's another to say that you went to see this performance of Yeah, Macbeth. but somebody else paid the company to have him on the stage. So I doubt his performance was that great, to be fair. <laughs> like, I'm just saying, I'm just, you know, the company didn't want him. Hmm. Somebody else paid for him to be there. So, like, after seeing, like, a second-rate, possibly third-rate performance, you then didn't see the end that you were expecting to see. I'd be pretty pissed off. Yeah, I'd want my money back. What you saw was assault with a weapon. Yeah, is, I'd still want my money. It's entertaining in its own way, no, isn't it? No, I'd still want my money back. Okay, well, I don't know if anyone was given the money back, but I do know it was the end of his acting career. Good. Now, William could have consoled himself that at least he had his reputation as a hard worker with a good... God-fearing and temperate family beside him. I know, I imagine he fairly abandoned his job to try and pursue this two-bit No, no, he didn't abandon his job. It's worse than that. His job abandoned him. Because in 1877, at the age of 52, William was let go from his job in order to cut costs. (laughs) Oh, God. And almost simultaneously, one of his daughters announced that she was pregnant. Of course she was. And while normally this would have been a cause of great celebration, this particular daughter was not married. I was just going to say, she wasn't married, was she? Hmm. An illegitimate child at the time was seen as a stain on the character of not only the woman, but her entire family. Oh, yeah. And William Topaz McGonagall took the situation incredibly hard. Well, yeah, I mean, this is where you get the um, the issues with the Irish... Um, Oh, my brain's gone. Wash houses. Um, no, the the Irish orphanages and the, mm. you know, kind of like you. Well, have you ever seen the 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 TV show about it, where they used to have like workhouses for fallen women? Yeah, yeah, those are the wash houses. Yeah, and it, it was always a promise that you'd get to see your kid, and slowly over time they caught how much they were able to see the kids and eventually the kid kind Mm. of disappeared. Well, we're talking about a time when women would be placed in asylums for having children out of wedlock. I know, it's just disgusting. It's, I mean, like we're incapable, incapable. It's just... And I don't know what happened to the daughter. Unfortunately, she was not remembered to history beyond she had a child out of wedlock. But William, the combination of losing his acting dream losing his job, losing his reputation and being 52. It was the perfect melting pot for a midlife crisis. Oh, yes. And boy, did he have a midlife crisis. Oh, amazing. What what did he do? Well, let's just think at the time, it wouldn't be a car. Would Look, it be women? Would no. it be gambling? It was a higher, loftier ideal than that. He still wanted to be like his hero, William Shakespeare. But with the acting side of things kind of kiboshed. Oh, no. He started writing. He, not only writing, he wrote poetry. Oh my God. My worst. William described the moment he reached this decision thusly. Mm. A flame, as Lord Byron has said, seemed to kindle up my entire frame, along with a strong desire to write poetry. And I felt so happy, so happy, that I was inclined to dance. Dance, magic dance. I don't know... 
when this desire to dance at the happiness of his his new decision took place. But I like to think it was just randomly at dinner and he wasn't verbalising any of this. His wife just saw him get up from his chair and do a little jig. awkward jig. Oh, my God. <laughs> what, what are you bit... doing, William? Poetry! Oh, my God. A bit like the grandpa in Willy Wonka. And yes, Charlie Grandpa and Joe. Poetry. Grandpa Joe, that's it. Yeah, imagine that, only it's a 52-year-old irate Scotsman. Wow. Possibly in order to ensure the support of God in his new career, uh-huh. William decided that his first published poem, many of these were self-published, I will point out, should be an ode to a local priest called George Gilfrillen. 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 He took up his pen and composed 27 lines, which included... Go on. Are you ready for this? Poet at me. He preaches in a plain, straightforward way. The people flock to hear him night and day, and hundreds from the doors are often turned away. Because he is the greatest preacher of the present day, he has written the life of Sir Walter Scott, and while he lives, he will never be forgot, nor when he is dead. Poetry. As you can tell, he has a natural gift. I'm not being funny, but that has not helped, not helped my love or disdain, actually, for poetry. I, 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 I can't. Well, he was so proud of this that he presented a copy to the Reverend Gillifrin, who kept a straight face. Bless him. And said to William that, honestly, Shakespeare himself has never written anything like this. Okay, well, that God would smite him. And smeet him down for that, because that is a lie. Well, That is a lie. No, it is true to say that Shakespeare has never written anything like that. Well, no. No. And William did, unfortunately, assume that Gillifrey meant that he believed his work was better than the immortal bards, giving him the confidence to begin churning out poems about literally everything and anything. Oh, great. Sometimes it was clear that he was pretty much just rewriting newspaper articles so that they rhymed. Right, I'm not being funny. When when you have a small child, mm. either they start doing something or you start doing something that sounds very similar, which is singing what you're doing. And sometimes it's thus to entertain a very small child and sometimes the small child thinks it's ever so funny to sing what they're doing also well, no, and it, this kind of feels a little bit looking back to when you know the the great sort of oral tradition of homer were in order to keep history for future generations you needed to put it into a poem so that people would be able to remember it i mean we're ignoring the invention of the printing press here in order for it to make sense but as yeah. an example Right. His poem, The Wreck of the Steamer London While on Her Way to Australia. I'll give you the first nine lines, okay? Mm-hmm. Right, go on. Be Twas quick. It. I can't be. It's poetry. No, I want it quick because I hate poetry. Make it quick. It's going to seem long no matter how I read it. Oh my God. Right, just let me adjust my ice pack so I don't get a migraine. There we go. Twas in the year of 1866. And on a very beautiful day, that eighty-two passengers with spirits light and gay left Gravesend Harbour and sailed gaily away on board the steamship London, bound for the city of Melbourne, which unfortunately was her last run, because she was wrecked on the stormy main, which has caused many a heart to throb with pain, 
because they will ne'er look upon their lost ones again. Poetry. <laughs> and William, oh he kept God. at it. He kept churning these out. And within Do a year... Do you know year, what it's like? It's yeah. like GCSE performance performance poetry <laughs> that's what it's like well he's got the idea of rhyming i'll give him that yeah so is most year two children i wouldn't put them you know up there with the greats no but he's this is you know he's he's got a year of practicing talk about and he feels he's improving right i'm not being funny you you have kids to look after you've yeah. lost your job yeah you've lost your backup job yeah. And you decide to crack out the pen and paper and create this bollocks. This poetry. Bollocks. Anyway, after a year, he felt he'd improved as a poet. You know, the first are a few, sh- you know, first ones are a bit shaky, but starting a new endeavour, you're going to have a few false starts. It's fine. He's been practising for a year now, honing his craft. And he felt that he'd improved so much that he deserved the recognition of none other than the Queen herself. So he wrote her a letter containing some of what he felt to be his best poems and he sent it to the palace. (laughs) He received a standard response from one of her underlings. You know, thank you for your... Yeah. Um, And he assumed that this completely stock response that didn't make any personal references or even references to what he had sent... No, I'm not being funny. Those poems will have been found filed in the rhyme in the round file aka the bin well probably. nobody will have read them but he'd got a response that's the important thing and he took that to mean that queen victoria herself had personally read and enjoyed his work because otherwise why would he have got a letter back because everyone gets a letter back if you write to the queen somebody on her behalf will write back no william he is very much he is a simple man and yes, he believes quite that clearly. a response to a letter means that you have you know, read and enjoyed what was sent oh, to Jesus you. Wept. So he believes now he has the full backing of Queen Victoria. Okay. God. He also believed that this essentially made him the semi-official poet laureate for Dundee and the surrounding areas. So William decided to commemorate the opening of a brand new railway bridge over the River Tay as if he were commissioned to do so by the Queen. So yeah, in the way that the Queen would ask the actual poet laureate, who at the time was Alfred Lord Tennyson, you know, <laughs> I've I've got this new ship, I'd like you to write something uh, about it, or this yeah, event's happened. Yeah. He was like, well, I need to show her, she's impressed with me, but I need to show her that I have the chops <sighs> for those big, you know, opening of a new sort of civic structure or right. opening of a new bit of, you know, he needed to, he needed to show that he could roll with the big boys. <sighs> God. And it just so happened uh, that there was a new bridge over the River Tay, a new railway bridge being built. So he, he went and he looked at it. Right. And he thought his hardest thinking. And he composed a lovely poem which contained these beautiful, heartfelt lines. Go on. Thy structure to my eye seems strong and grand, and the workmanship most skilfully planned. And I hope the designers, Mrs. Barlow and Arrol, will prosper for many a day for erecting thee across the beautiful Tay. And I think nobody need have the least dismay to cross over thee by night or by day because thy strength is visible to be seen nearby Dundee and the bonny Magdalen Green. So that's, it's it's getting better. Is it? I feel marginally. 
I'm not convinced by that. I'm I'm sorry. I I mean poetry is just hateful full stop well, end of discussion really in my eyes so to he me he thought he nailed it <laughs> well okay. good for him and he was so pleased with his poem that he reportedly decided he would have to hand deliver it to the queen herself at Balmoral Castle he's not going to be able to get anywhere near well he was you know he was in Dundee right and he needed to get to Balmoral so he walked 60 miles of course he did he reached the gate and was told by a rather confused guard that the Queen wasn't in, and that even if she was in, she wasn't in the habit of accepting unsolicited callers. No. So he walked back. So he, he did a 120-mile round trip. With a bit of paper for absolutely... Absolutely no reason. No reason, essentially. Right. He also completed the same walk again in 1892 following the death of Alfred Lord Tennyson to offer to take over as Poet Laureate for all of Britain, not just Dundee. Where's he getting his money from at this point? Well, he doesn't have a lot. That's why he's walking. But we'll get into how he was able to fund this. Okay. Uh, Again, he got there. He wasn't able to get past the guard. Uh, No. The post of Poet Laureate would eventually go to a man called Alfred Austin. Mm -hmm. who I would argue is now actually less well-known than William McGonagall, which goes to show that Queen Victoria had made the wrong decision. I don't think she had, but okay. (laughs) This man is delusional. Bit of a a shift in tone now. It was a stormy night. It always is. On Sunday, December 28th, 1879. The wind whipped at the Tay Bridge as the passenger train from Edinburgh was nearing the middle of the longest span which was nearly 75 metres. In an instant, the metal girders gave way, plunging the train into the icy waters below. Oh, God, really? There were no survivors. Oh, that's really sad. I love trains. Turns out that the workmanship on the Tay Bridge had not been as skillfully planned as William had suggested in his poem. Oh, The piers upon which the bridge rested were found to be far too far apart and too narrow. They were also constructed on a shifting gravel base rather than on bedrock, which is what you generally want to build your bridges on. Yeah. The girders were made of cast iron rather than steel and poor quality cast iron at that. Oh, my God. And the entire construction had not taken into account the potential lateral stresses that the wind might place on it. Right. So it was shoddy as shoddy could be. Hmm. Right. The designer, Sir Thomas Bouch, was so he was so embarrassed by the entire thing that he died in disgrace less than a year after the incident. Just out of sheer... Disgrace? Just, he was so embarrassed. He went oh red my God. for nine months Could you imagine and then just died. Actually, I mean, I think we've all been there. Moments where you feel like the earth could swallow you up and you could die of embarrassment. He literally... That happened to him. Died of embarrassment. Wow. But it took a year, but he, he died He had been responsible for the death of 75 people, I believe it was. So. Yeah, I th- I, yeah, I think the upset of that had probably finished somebody off, well, wouldn't it? William, he also felt a weird sense of responsibility because he'd written this amazing poem that had bigged up the bridge and he was worried, you know, that if okay. he'd been a bit more circumspect about it and put, you know, something like the beautiful bridge over the River Tay, looks like one day it might give way. Yeah. So he felt he had to address what had happened. Wow. And he quickly penned the Tay Bridge disaster. This is now considered by some to be the worst poem ever written. 
Oh, now that is a claim because I have read some bad... Well, to me, all poetry is bad, but I have read some very bad poetry. So are you going to give me a little snippet of this really bad poem? I can give you some some or all. We'll not see all. How, we'll Please, see how far not you get. all. We'll see how far you get. How about okay, that? Okay, okay. Beautiful railway bridge. Oh, the silvery tay. Alas, I am very sorry to say that 90 lives have been taken away on the last Sabbath day of 1879 which will be remembered for a very long time. "'Twas about seven o'clock at night, and the wind it blew with all its might, and the rain came pouring down, and the dark clouds seemed to frown, and the demon of the air seemed to say, "'I'll blow down the bridge of Tay.' When the train left Edinburgh, the passengers' hearts were light and felt no sorrow, but Boreas blew a terrific gale, which made their hearts for to quail, and many of the passengers with fear did say, "'I hope God will send us safe across the bridge of Tay.' But when the train came near to Wormit Bay, Boreas, he did loud and angry bray, and shook the central girders of the Bridge of Tay on the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered for a very long time. Oh my God. So the train sped with all its might, and Bonnie Dundee soon hove in sight, and the passengers' hearts felt light, thinking that they would enjoy themselves on the new year, with their friends at home they loved most dear, and wished them all a happy new year. So the train moved slowly along the bridge of Tay until it was about midway. Then the central girders with a crash gave way, and down went the train and passengers into the Tay. The storm feed, the storm fiend did loudly bray, because ninety lives had been taken away on the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered for a very long time. Oh my gosh! As soon as the catastrophe came to be known, the alarm from mouth to mouth was blown, and the cry rang out all over the town, Good heavens! The Tay Bridge is blown down. <laughs> Stop it. And a passenger train from Edinburgh, which filled all the people's hearts with sorrow and made them for to turn pale, because none of the passengers were saved to tell the tale, how the disaster happened on the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered for a very long time. God, please stop the poem. It must have been an awful sight. I want to get off. To witness stop in the dusky it. moonlight. While the storm fiend did bray... Uh, sorry, you're almost at the end. While the storm fiend did laugh and angry did bray... I'm along not laughing. The, along the railway bridge of the Silvery Tay. Oh, oh ill-fated bridge of the Silvery Tay. I must now conclude my lay by telling the world fearlessly and without the least dismay that your central girders would not have given way, at least many sensible men do say, had they been supported on either side with buttresses. At least many sensible men do confess. For the stronger we have... <laughs> Sorry, for the stronger we our houses do build, the less chance we have of being killed. And that is the worst poem ever written. I was sceptical. I think it probably deserves the title. I have literally rubbed my eyes in dismay at the awfulness of that poem to the point where they are now red raw. Um, that was shite. Would you be surprised to learn that it did not change Queen Victoria's mind on whether he should become Poet Laureate or not? No, again, I think that was filed in the round file. Um, never to resurface, or it should never have resurfaced, because God almighty. Now, you asked me before how he made money. Yes. And without the benefit of royal patronage, let's be fair, he made his money from his poems by performing in and around Dundee. Small venues. Right. In order to add a sense of drama to his performances, because he was, you know, 
formerly an actor. William decided he had to look the part, and he grew out a long red beard and began wearing full Highlander garb, complete with a kilt that most described as being a little bit too big for him. Right. He would arrive at a small theatre, or more often a pub, Uh and would recite his poems to the audience, convinced that he was providing culture to the masses on par with the greats of the English language. The audience would often respond by throwing food at him. Yeah. And jeering. Mm-hmm. But William would not lose his composure and would continue re- he would continue reciting regardless of the reception he received. Oh my God. I mean, he's lucky it's just food. You know, you could imagine some very angry Scots throwing bloody pint glasses or tankards or whatever at him. Well, the thing was, he thought the entertainment was his poems, but the reputation went round that there's this bloke and if he's performing at a pub, you can turn up, you can throw whatever you want at him, yeah. shout abuse at him, and he'll stand and take it. And he just, While yeah. dressed like bloody Donald wears your trousers. <laughs> Donald wears your trousers. And they would, they would give money for the experience. So he was making small amounts of money. It probably didn't help with the old throwing of food and stuff that one of William's favourite themes for a poem was the evils of alcohol. <laughs> He was a lifelong teetotaler, and he felt it was his Christian duty to try and convince others of the benefits of abstinence. Oh, do you know what? Right. I never understood this. Because as somebody who is, for most of the year, teetotal, I do drink, but it is very rare and seldom. It is. Very rare and seldom. It's usually occasions where I I allow myself a couple of drinks. Like Tuesdays. (laughs) And the occasional Friday morning um so yeah but i've never felt the need to have you know kind of occasion to to make comment on somebody else's drinking you know what i mean it's like what then you have a little bit more self-awareness than william mcgonagall yeah he has none he would stand up and he would deliver lines like this Oh my God. The devil delights in breeding family strife, especially betwixt man and wife. And if the husband comes home drunk at night, he laughs and cries, Ha ha, what a beautiful sight. (laughs) Again, he's performing in front of large groups of men in pubs. And he's coming at it with, you're the reason your wife hates you. Your drinking is the reason. What you're doing right now to relax. Yeah. That's the devil's doing it, and you're going to end up losing everything. Oh, my God. Unsurprisingly, William himself said that the first person ever to throw food at him during a performance was a pub landlord. I bet it bloody was. (laughs) But even better, it wasn't the landlord of the pub he was performing at. It was a different pub landlord (laughs) who specifically visited a rival in order to throw peas at William McGonagall. Peas. Yep. In a pod, or just peas, I peas. don't know. I, I like to think mushy peas. Oh, you see, I, I imagine, like, a full pod. <laughs> peas, just whipping it at Just him. whipping. Well, either That'd way. That'd be really satisfying. It didn't affect William to have peas thrown at him, because he appeared to be willfully ignorant of the fact that other people saw him as a bit of a novel joke. The penny continued to not drop when he was offered a recurring gig at the local circus. William justified performing at a circus by telling himself that they needed some high culture to counteract the lowbrow humour of the clowns. Oh, for God's Although sakes. he was still being pelted with food and it was explicitly stated on the bill 
that you were allowed to do so. But he did receive a regular income of 15 shillings each night, which was essential in keeping his family out of complete poverty. I so bet you're asking, it bloody was. You're asking how he made the money to keep them, you know, in the home in Dundee. Yeah, he had throat, food thrown at him. Yeah, he performed at a circus. But he still felt he was poet laureate material. Yeah, I, I return to my initial thought of delusion, <laughs> I think. Complete and total delusion at this point in time. I wonder if by this point he realises, but he sort of burned all the other bridges because now he's not the skilled handloom weaver or no. the actor. He is the guy who gets food thrown at him. And it was like, this is In now... an oversized kilt with a massive yeah. red beard. I've now made such a joke of myself that this is the only way I can make money. Yeah. So I've just got to lean into it and pretend it doesn't bother me, even though I'm crying on the inside. Yeah, I, I, to be honest, I, I have very little sympathy for him. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I don't know whether this is a story of tragedy or not, but I... It's a tragedy for his wife. It is. It, I feel incredibly, no incredibly sorry for her. Well, eventually, in 1894, William was ordered by the local magistrates to no longer perform at the circus, as his performances were edging ever closer to just being full-blown riots. Wow, okay. They were having so much disruption that they were like, right, we can't allow no. William no, to get no, on stage no. because it's, it's like in the blue touch paper. Everyone just suddenly starts smashing shop windows and running off with products as soon as he steps up. We need to get oh rid of him. Oh my God, right, okay. He's a liability now. William did not take this decision well and resolved to finally leave his beloved Dundee at the age of 69. And naturally, he announced this decision in verse. Of course he did. Therefore, I'm resolved from it to flee, for a prophet has no honour in his own country, and try and live in some other town where the magistrates won't boycott me or try to keep me down. Yeah, that's right. You stick it to the man. Hmm. He tried moving to Perth for a year, but that didn't stick. And he eventually settled in Edinburgh, apparently the city of his birth. Although, I don't, I don't know about I that. I don't think they claim him. Let's just put uh, it that way. In 1895. Uh, when we went there, we didn't find a plaque. No. Although he is, yeah, we'll get to it, but he is commemorated there. Okay. William probably moved to Edinburgh as he believed he had friends there. And Who? While it, while it is true that there were some people who were willing to help pay his bills, it had appeared that they did so because they enjoyed seeing William fail and they found him funny, rather than through a belief that he would ever actually succeed and be able to pay them back. Uh-huh. So there were, it basically seems there were a group of lovies in Edinburgh yeah. who thought he was a great jolly lark. Yeah. Hi, and they just keep pushing him to see how far he'd go. Yeah. You know, they, did, they didn't want the game to end, so they'd sub in money here and there, yeah. keep him going. Yeah. To this end, his circle of friends had previously arranged two tours for William. To London in 1880 and to right. New York City in America in 1887. Good God. Each time they managed to convince William that he would be welcomed as a literary sensation by the more cultured people he would find in each city. Wow. So they were saying, look, Dundee, small people, small ideas, small brains. You need to get out there. Yeah, go to New York. If you go to New York, you will find a vibrant community and people will understand you and they'll accept you and will see you for the genius you are. Naturally, each tour was a complete disaster. Of course um, it was. William came home with less money than when he'd he left, despite yeah. having all of his expenses subbed. Wow. He'd somehow managed to lose money. 
But this group of friends yeah. undertook their cruelest joke shortly after his move to Edinburgh. Oh no, what did they do? Well, knowing that William had always wanted to be recognised by royalty, yeah. someone wrote a letter to him pretending to be the King of Burma. Right. In this letter, the King of Burma uh-huh. said that he had been made aware of McGonagall's poetry. How? In dispatches. All oh, right. And he'd been so moved by it that he wished to make William a knight in the Order of the White Elephant. I mean, it, it sounds suspect to begin with, doesn't it, really? It doesn't sound legit. Well, William, he wanted it to be true. Well, of course he did. He took the letter deadly seriously, and from that day on, he referred to himself as Sir William Topaz McGonagall. Oh, God. Leading to much snickering behind his back. I bet. Yeah, come across like a right div. Yeah, because he would, they'd say, a sir. And he would would explain that he received, he was a member of the Order of the White Elephant uh, and that he, you know, he'd been um, honoured by the King of Burma. Yeah. Who had taste. He's the only one. (laughs) For the first few, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) The Burmese, they get me. Yeah. They're my people. Yeah. How did they learn how did they learn about you? Ways and means. Mm. My, Who knows? My poems are obviously sent all over the empire. Yeah. Via New York. Yeah. For the first few years in Edinburgh, William had a bit of a following as a novelty act. Okay. But by the time of the new century dawning, the novelty had worn off, and William was left destitute oh. and relying on occasional donations from his friends in order to not starve. Yeah, they weren't helping him to live a good life. They were just helping him to live. Yeah. Survive, I think. Not really live, is it? Survival. They obviously felt some responsibility for having egged him on for the past two decades. That he could be a poet. Yeah. But not so much responsibility that they felt they needed to do more than keep a roof over his head. Yeah. And a gruel in his belly. Mm. Hey, there's nothing wrong with gruel on a cold night. Mm. William died on September 29th, 1902, and was buried in a pauper's grave in Greyfriars Kirkyard. Mm. But his poetry, considered to be devoid of any literary merit, yes. has ensured that William McGonagall continues to live on as a cultural icon. He's been used as a character in The Goon Show by Spike Milligan. Oh! The character McGoonagall. He has been parodied by Monty Python's Flying Circus. Has he? There is a character in homage to him in the Discworld series by Terry Pratchett. One of the wee free men, oh, the right, battle okay. poet, right. is called McGonagall. Nice. He reads poems that are so awful, it causes the, the opposition to run from the field of battle. Nice. Uh, you can rely all... on our Terry, can't you? He's also mentioned in Asterix and Obelix. Is he? Yes, That's the the, uh, the translation of the the poet is is something like Magunilex, Magonilex, I think it is. Magonilex is the uh, is the poet, the terrible poet from the village. Wow! And as you've said, he is also the reason why one of the professors in Harry Potter is called Minerva McGonagall. However, this is because J.K. Rowling liked the sound of the name rather than her being a fan of his poetry. Yeah. And McGonagall is is Scottish. Minerva McGonagall mm. is is a Scottish wizard. Which? Which? Person. Fictional character. Fictional character. Not real. 
In his beloved Dundee, there is now a yearly charity dinner held in his honour, where the courses are eaten in reverse order. And there is a McGonagall Square in the west end of the city named in his honour. There is also a plaque in Edinburgh above the site where he died, because he was staying in rooms above a pub that still exists. So you can go and find a plaque in Edinburgh celebrating their favourite maybe son. (laughs) Not... I think you have to look quite hard to find it, but it's there. Oh, so that oh, we didn't find it. That is the story of William Topaz McGonagall, oh. member of the Order of the White Elephant, and god awful poet. And I will, even by poetry standards, I will leave you with right. the chorus of the only song that William ever wrote, oh, which Jesus was called Christ. "The Rattling Boy of Dublin." Oh God! And this is the chorus of that song. Whack faldi da, faldi dare leo. Whack faldi da, faldi dare lee. Whack faldi da, faldi dare leo. Whack faldi da, faldi dare lee. She's just beautiful. Oh, I've got tears in my eyes. <laughs> and the source. Go on. For this. Yeah. Poetic gems by William McGonagall himself. Oh my God. Which contained uh, a prefix that he wrote in which, this is his own poetry collection, he recounts the story of the first time he had food thrown at him (laughs) and then goes into a diatribe about how it wasn't to do with his poetry, it was to do with the fact that everyone was overcome by the evils of drink. Yeah, that's the reason. But it also contains a lovely foreword by Billy Connolly himself. Oh, the biggin. Who has referenced William McGonagall uh, as part of some of his TV series and has talked about him. Yes. So, like it or not, he is he is one of Scotland's more eccentric sons. Yeah. Yeah. But of a lot of jokes, but I think in, in a lot of ways loved. Mm. And I'd love to say, go and read them because they're so bad, they're good, but they're not. They're just so unrelentingly bad. <laughs> That Poetic Gems is the most mistitled book I've ever read. Yeah. Because they're all... He, he likes to end a line with say. Many do say, or yes. have heard say. Because there's a lot of things that rhyme with say. A. Yeah, so he's, a. he's doing okay with that. <laughs> he's doing okay yeah. with say today. Yeah. yeah. So you can you can definitely find the recurring themes. Yeah. But no, there's there's no merit there. Oh. What do you think, Noxie? But my oh, question to you is, you said you hated that. him, or you weren't a fan of him. Now yeah. that we've got to the end of his story, yeah. and bearing in mind poor old Jean, who suffered through all of this. Oh, don't. I, 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 my heart goes out to poor Jean. Have, Jean I, have I at least brought you back to being neutral towards him? I'm not looking for you to like the man. Are you neutral towards him? No. Oh, abject failure. Yeah. Much like William himself. <laughs> Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.